Hey y'all, this is Rich Collins of Renaissance Publishing. Welcome to Mardi Gras Beyond the Beads, a series of conversations with Mardi Gras historian Errol Laborde about the history and traditions of Carnival, the greatest free show on earth. This season of Mardi Gras Beyond the Beads is brought to you by Crispy Crunchy Chicken. One of the best things about Mardi Gras is the food. And when you're craving crispy crunchy chicken with the Cajun flair, there's only one solution, crispy crunchy chicken. Look for it in select convenience stores all over town. Hello everyone and welcome to Beyond the Beads. This is Rich Collins and it's my honor to be here today asking questions of Errol Aboard. Hi Rich. <laughs> so look, we've talked a lot over the last few years about all sorts of carnival themes, Mardi Gras topics, but today we want to talk to you again, big uh, thousand foot view looking down. Let's talk about the evolution of Mardi Gras in New Orleans as we know it. And uh, just kind of pick a starting point and, and lead us off. Okay, the evolution in New Orleans or yes, in sir. the world? Okay, okay. Because, um, well, I need to go back a little bit to some yeah. of the, the, the prehistoric Mardi Gras. The, um, there was always some sort of celebration, I guess, in the human psyche for that time of the year when winter was changing into spring. Right. Some sort of celebration. And there's stories about pagan celebrations that they'd have and they'd, uh, um, they'd go out into the, in some places in Italy, they'd go out into the forest and they'd uh, cut down a tree and and uh, and burn the tree and have a big fire and there and there are different things that went on. There were some places that they go to a town and they select a prisoner to be the king and then part of the tradition with uh, after the <laughs> celebration they had killed the king. Uh. Uh, and so, which is really somehow part of a tradition too in, in the uh, South American celebrations like, like in the Caribbean they've got this tradition of King Mumu okay. uh, where they select um, I think two or three days before Mardi Gras it's a it's a straw dummy. Okay. And then they have this big day where they get together, and then they burn the king. Right. Okay. Well, that's more acceptable because it's made from straw. Right. right? <laughs> uh, but this idea of, of of having a king, and then killing the king, and so without getting too deep into it, just think of this idea of a king being sacrificed. Okay. Um, basically, for the sins of all the other people. Right. Um, celebrate, uh, and so it's kind of a an ancient idea. When, um, when Rome came uh, or, or developed, Rome had something called a Saturnalia. It was the same sort of thing. Uh, we're moving from winter to spring and they had the celebrations. Everything kind of uh, rowdy and raunchy you hear about Rome. Mm -hmm. First back to Saturnalia. I mean, right. I mean the, Roman or, uh, 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 the Roman orgies, the masquerading or the lack of masquerading thereof. Uh, the first female impersonators and everything else. And so uh, the Roman Saturnalia was a big thing that lasted over a long time. Once Christianity got into place, and uh, uh, that had been like in the 300s, and I, I guess a few centuries after that, and this is a theme that you see a lot, that Christianity, as it developed, got things that were already established and that maybe weren't quite right, okay, uh, in their book, but instead of getting rid of it because they couldn't get rid of them, mm -hmm. developed it. Right. Right. And so you have, here you have all this rowdy celebration. Well, why not make the celebration uh, instead tie it in with the crucifix of Christ and have it like 40 days before the crucifixion, the days of Lent and all this sort of right. stuff. 
and so that's what's created. Okay, you have forty days of uh, uh, of Lent. Uh, the day before Lent is the last day of celebrating right. uh, Fat Tuesday. You know, Mardi Gras in the French country, uh, and and so that tradition, you know, uh, moved on until it became Mardi Gras. Now through the years, it became a lot more civil. Uh, Orgies weren't necessarily a part of the uh, uh, the tradition, and, and certainly killing the king uh, right. um, wasn't. It was more of an honor uh, to be king. But anyway, and so that's the kind of carnival that developed out of Europe. The thing that's strange about Europe, um, especially in France, because you think the term Mardi Gras, which right. is which is purely French, and there's a lot of celebration, but it never really held up in France like the way that you thought it would. Right. Uh, there were early celebrations in France uh, for Mardi Gras for the season. But during the time of Napoleon, Napoleon didn't like religion, right? And anything that had a religious connotation, he wanted to kind of get rid of. They couldn't hold it down forever, and after a while, these celebrations came back. Uh, But then, at the end of the World War II period, and the period of fascism, the the fascists didn't like religion either. And so, twice, I mean, Mardi Gras was a carnival celebration was just shut down because of the prevailing uh, religion, and and so example in uh, uh, in Venice, Venice's first carnival celebration was in the 1100s. Okay. And, and it, it went on for a long time, but it was the same. Napoleon had influence there, and it was it was shut down, and the fascists shut it down. It was the same sort of thing uh, that happened over there. And it really didn't start coming back. They didn't really reorganize uh, Carnival in Venice until like the 1960s. Oh, my gosh. You really? know, people think, that, hey, this is the ancient, ancient tradition. That it's really fairly new in terms of the revival okay. of it. Okay. Uh, and I think that's what, what, what happened in Europe, that Europe, people think it's, it's old, and it, 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 its origin was old, but there was a big gap in, in between. And then it developed. I think there were two other factors, though, that gave it a go in Europe was by the 1960s, well, actually before that, you were starting to get more railroad activity. Uh, and the uh, and so you had these railroads that were going across Europe, and so if you got a railroad, people want to go somewhere. Right. So that happens. I think a big impetus, and probably nobody in Venice will ever say this, <laughs> uh, for the evolution or the, or the redevelopment of Venice Mardi Gras was passenger jets, Okay. And once you got into the era when you had jumbo jets, especially going from JFK in New York uh, to Venice, and it made it convenient. And so there's this big whole tour, American tourist industry they could develop. Now, of course, again, they could never develop. They could never say we do it for American tourists. Right. But, but one would think that they might, okay? <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, and that was the same thing uh, that, was, uh, that was happening. Um, so to come to the United States... Um, in New Orleans, because it was French, there were some early celebrations, you know, pretty much drinking and doing that kind of thing. Right. The story is, I really don't buy into it, but, but anyway, is that the day that the Frenchman first landed, they were filling this party, was March 3rd, 1699, right. which happened to be the first Mardi Gras. I mean, I mean, it happened to be Mardi Gras Day that year. And so some people have said, well, look, you know, Mardi Gras really began in, in, in New Orleans that day. It was That's why French... they called it Point du Mardi Gras. Yeah, 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 yeah. They called it Point Mardi Gras. And, um, and so it's, it's a fun theory, but I'm positive that in 
1700 and 1701 and 17 all the years that followed, yeah. they didn't celebrate Mardi Gras. This was just a bunch of, of, of scruffy men out on the bayou. Right. But, you know, if they toasted a drink, I guess that was a, a Mardi Gras celebration. Right. <laughs> As New Orleans developed more into a town, there would be celebrations, just because mostly because they were French, and the French knew about celebrations. And, and they say at the time there was a, the French governor was a guy named the Marquise de Vaudray. Okay. And, um, and Vaudray saw himself, and this was during the time of Louis XIV, and Vaudray saw himself as like Louis XIV in the New World. Okay, and he didn't quite have a, a Versailles, but he had a nice house. Okay. And, uh, and so they had elegant parties. And so here's this, like, really scruffy frontier town, right. and he has these elegant balls with the china and the wine. And so there was that as far as the, uh, the ball tradition. Supposedly, in, I think it was in 1834, there was a parade. There's not much known about it, but for some reason there was a parade, and so somebody tried it. Uh, and so that might be the, uh, the first example. Wait, which year was that? 1834. Okay, wow. Okay. Um, but it's not part of the continuing history. Uh, right. You know, there's no evidence of that it continued. The continuing history began in 1857, and that was a group of guys together, uh, got together, and they said, well, let's start a parade. And um, they, um, they called it Comus, and th they introduced a lot of what is now part of Carnival. And, and these guys were more, they went French. These are more in the English tradition. Like they created the word crew, okay. which is not the proper, K-R-E-W-E is not the proper English spelling, but they, they created it. And, um, you know, it's the mystic crew of Comus. And, and that board from, uh, during that time, there was tradition, especially around men organizations, throughout the country, but especially in the South, to have these mystic organizations, right. you know, like, like the Masons and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, so what happened... To bring this to Comus, because 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 you got to understand what happened in 1857 is like being the beginning of what would evolve in New Orleans, and Mobile, which like New Orleans was uh, was a French town, uh, had began having a celebration in the 1830s. I think it was 1831, and the story is that on New Year's Eve that night, a bunch of guys they were in a they were drinking. And as it got to be midnight, he said, hey, it's, it's New Year's, let's go celebrate. And so it, it happened, they were, they were near a hardware store, and in those days you didn't feel the need to, to lock up your things, so right. they got some rakes and cowbells. And, uh. Okay, and they went down the streets, and they, they were rowdy, and they made a lot of noise. And supposedly one of the stops was at the mayor's house, and... Um, who didn't mind, okay, you know, past midnight being awakened by a bunch of drunks, right. okay? But, uh, but maybe he saw tourism in the future or yeah. something like that. Okay? <laughs> and so apparently the, the mayor was compliant. I think it probably wasn't as spontaneous as the story has it, that probably these guys were kind of uh, thinking about doing this. But one thing I think so, uh, uh, key, the guy who organized it, who was in that bar that night, was a guy named Michael Kraft. And Michael Kraft was from uh, Pennsylvania. Okay. He was from Reading, Pennsylvania. But to me, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> I always say that the, the key city in understanding the New Orleans evolution of Carnival begins with a P. And it's not Paris, it's Philadelphia. Okay. okay? Because um, what happened in Philadelphia, there was this tradition of the mummers. Right. Now, the, the mummers was an old European tradition, not French. I think it was, it was mostly Swedish. But... Uh, but according to the mummers' tradition, on the uh, on, more, on on New Year's Day, you'd go out in the streets and you'd make noise, 
and you'd go and you'd beg for things. Right. It's a begging tradition. Okay. And again, probably the people you beg probably knew you were coming, but it yeah. wasn't kind of spontaneous. But that borrows from uh, a medieval tradition where uh, on a given day, I don't know what particular day it was, that the people who lived around their lord's castle would on a given day have a celebration and they go knock at the lord's door asking for food that they can make into a soup. Okay. And again, the Lord, but again, I think it was compliant also. Right. And so it's the same sort of thing. It was scripted on Yeah, things. yeah. And so this is what's known as the beggar's tradition. Okay. And and so the beggar's tradition got this idea of uh, of people going out and celebrating. There's like this top figure that you go when you're kind of begging something uh, from them. So that tradition, I think, you know, over the years, a lot of these people moved to the United States a lot of them moved to Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, because Philadelphia is a major port city, and it's also kind of like the gateway to the South. Okay. You know, if you live in the Northeast and then uh, then you go down south from Philadelphia, but you had this parade, you had this Vegas tradition of the mummers. They wear costumes and they had music and they go through the streets of Philadelphia, and they get, and, and the mummers are still here. I mean, I mean, it's still a tradition. Right. But I think what happened is anybody who grew up in Philadelphia and certainly Michael Kraft would have seen the mummers. Right. And would have seen this idea of people going out in the streets on New Year's right. Day, uh, you know, and making music and being a little bit rowdy and and, 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 and doing some begging. So uh, I think what happened with, in Mobile borrowed or, or came from the Mummers tradition, and then some of those people a few years later moved to New Orleans. Uh, and so they had this experience, and they, they actually started a parade, a New Year's Day parade in, in Mobile at that time called the Cowbellions, you know. Okay. And then that's Cabellians. So some of the Cabellians moved to New Orleans. I think New Orleans was like the go-to place by this time. I mean, if you want to be cool, I mean, you know, you know, you had Mobile, you're in, uh, uh, you're in New York, and so some people escaped. And Wait, then, so you said back at that in that era already, New Orleans was was yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, it was more magical, okay, yeah. and, 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 and more homogenous, and it was a really a really important port. Uh, probably more important than Mobile. I mean, especially being important in the Mississippi River uh, right. as opposed to Mobile, which is in Mobile Bay, which is just pretty much a shallow bay, right? Um, so I, I think it was a natural gravitation. So it was some of these people from Mobile who got this idea, well, let's start a parade here. And so they were the ones who started the first okay. Columbus Parade. And so every year during Carnival time, somebody says, well, you know, it was really... Um, uh, Mobile that started the, the the New Orleans Mardi Gras. Well, it was like people from Mobile who were influential in starting this first parade right. and introduced a lot of the uh, uh, the traditions, especially the mystical thing. Like Mobile to this day is still known as the mother of mystics. Okay. Because there used to be a lot of these kind of secretive men's organizations. Really? Okay. That was just a thing that you did uh, back okay. then. I guess if you were a, a man. And, that, that, and again, I think it was all padded after the Masons. With another thing, other thing developed. Um, yeah, I gotta say, it, it, as a New Orleans person, uh, it it hurts my pride a little bit to hear that that our tradition might have its roots, uh, you know, in another city's tradition. Not only Mobile, but if it came came from up north, you know, it's yeah. funny. There's a lot of pride in our Mardi Gras, but uh, yeah. Uh, well, well, hang on because it, <laughs> it, because it takes some twists. So, okay, okay, good, good. Okay, 
1857, then this parade. So, and that was the first time there was a continuous parade that marched every year. And imagine, like, you're in downtown New Orleans and it's dark. Maybe you have some kind of kerosene lamp. All of a sudden, you see all these floats and all that. Right. I mean, this is something that people never really saw. And so just the idea of going out and seeing a spectacle with lights and floats was a big attraction. And so that became um, a really important thing to have this Columbus Parade. And so Columbus was really the beginning of the continuing parading tradition in New Orleans. Uh, Columbus was a god. He was based on a play out of Milton. And uh, and, and, uh, and so he, he really is credited as being like the founder of the, the carnival. Okay. And so every, every year... So, in 1872, okay, so here's the other big year. Yeah. Um, a bunch of guys were sitting around within the St. Charles Hotel, and they wanted to start another parade. Okay. Now, Comus paraded at night, and they wanted a parade that paraded in the daytime. There had been, like, miscellaneous parades on Mardi Gras Day, just a bunch of people getting together and being rowdy, mm-hmm. and they wanted something that was organized. Uh, one thing I don't know, is uh, 1872 was 15 years after 1857. And so if there was any of the guys who were like in coma saying, let's do a 15th anniversary thing. Right. I mean, maybe they could. I mean, it's never been written, but it seems natural that, uh, that awesome. they could have. All right. And, uh, and Reconstruction was over. I mean, it was still during Reconstruction. Uh, Civil War then ended, what, in 1867 or something. And so it was still during a period of Reconstruction. But there was a real feeling not just in New Orleans, but throughout the South. Man, we got to come back. We got to rebuild our, ourselves, and we got to get people coming back to New Orleans. Right. Just like what we experienced after Katrina or after right. experiencing kind of this. So these guys, they got together, and then they started this parade. It was going to be the march on, on Mardi Gras, and they were going to give it the Latin name for King, which was Rex. Right. Um, a guy named Louis Solomon was chosen to be uh, the first Rex. And it was turned out to be fortuitous because in 1922, which would have been an anniversary of Rex, would that be 150? But anyway, he was living in Long Island, and the Times-Picayune sent a reporter to interview the first Rex. Right. And that stuff is like Dead Sea Scrolls kind of stuff, right? right? Because he was a guy who was there. He was only like in his 30s, so he was a young man at the time. He, He was Rex. So he was at the meetings. He had the memory. Okay. And, he, and, and he could talk about what they're doing, so that's how we know about the meetings uh, at the uh, at, at the St. Charles. He's Hotel. the source. He's the first-hand source. Yeah, yeah, and that's how we know that you know they were saying things. You know, let's develop this carnival and make this a real, real thing here, and that's how we know about one guy in particular, a guy named E.C. Hancock, who's the most uncelebrated person in carnival, who's really like the crucial guy, and he was a newspaper guy, and he was really the ramrod. Uh, behind doing this, hmm. and he was the one, uh, you, you know, they said, well, who's going to be this first Rex? And he says, well, Hancock turned and he says, Lewis, you'd be the first Rex, okay? Now, some people said that Solomon also had money, and so that, uh, <laughs> uh, that might have happened, and I think he did make a, uh, make a contribution. There's this other sort of legend that goes on that uh, Solomon was Jewish and that he's the only Jewish Rex uh, that there has been. Well, what we found out a few years ago doing research is that he, he was born into a Jewish family, but in the 1860s, before going into the Civil War, he converted to Catholicism. Huh. 
and, and there's a description in the newspaper about this conversion uh, uh, Jesuit church across from where the Fairmont is, where it was. Uh, <clears throat> the guy who was the bishop actually did it. So he was an important man, important enough that it is converting to Catholicism. Uh. I'm told, and this is something that needs more research at the time, is that there really wasn't an animosity problem in, in, in New Orleans. That, as far as we know, Jews and Gentiles always got along together. But from a business point, <laughs> It might have been more advantageous to be a Catholic than, than Jewish, okay? Right, right. And so there were a lot of people who converted to Catholicism just because that's that's where it was. I'm right. missing it. So anyway, um, so he converted to Catholicism, but but that doesn't that's just a curiosity. He, he went on, lived his life in New York, and then we found out that toward the end of his life he converted back to uh, to, uh, to Judaism. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, it's just a little. But it's also interesting that the, that the first King of Carnival ended up being a New Yorker. You know, he spent a lot, most of his life there. Well, uh, no, I don't think he spent most, most of his life there. But but he spent he's yeah he, yeah he, yeah after being okay. Now he is referred to as being from a prominent historical family, and we know I think it was his grandfather was a guy named Hyam Solomon, okay. and Hyam Solomon lived in Philadelphia. So that's probably where his family came from. And he was one of the major finances of the American Revolution. And so the King of Carnival's grandpa was the guy who helped pay for the revolution. Oh, my gosh. And in downtown Philadelphia, there is a statue of Hyam Solomon. Okay. Uh, Solomon, which I think is kind of a cool thing. Again, the connection to Philadelphia. Yeah. But you notice the other guy uh, I mentioned, E.C. Hancock? Yeah. Okay. Um, again, one article I've read refers to him as part of the Hancock family of history. Right. Okay. So it makes me believe he might have been related to John Hancock. Okay. So this would be several generations down. So the two key guys, uh, you know, were possibly related to, to John Hancock and Hyam Solomon. And uh, Important, important yeah, figures yeah. in the revolutionary yeah. period. Yeah, wow. especially, Sol- especially Solomon with the, uh, uh, with the money. Anyway, that interview he did just opened up a lot about what we know about Rex and it kind of negates the legend. The legend has always been that the first Rex Parade was because the Grand Duke Alexis was coming to town. Right, right. Uh, the Russian Grand Duke, and they were saying, hey, if Grand Duke's coming, let's have a parade to honor right. him. He did come to town, uh, and he was celebrated. He, he was invited to the Rex Parade. He was at Gary Hall, but that was not why they had the parade. I mean, had he not come to town, there would have still been the first Rex Parade. But, but to me, it always had a kind of romance to the story. Right. And it kind of legitimized Rex. Here you have one royal acknowledging another royal. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. You know. so, yeah. like, so did you say that's 1872? Is that the first? 1872. Okay. So there's that jump back decades. There was that outlier parade in the 1830s. A long period of nothing. Maybe a few little things. Yeah. Then Comus comes along in 1850s, the 1850s. 1857. Then you have the war. And then... Then really, Rex in, in 1872, Reconstruction period, post-war. That's when things that you feel like the, is that kind of the beginning of modern carnival? Would you say? In yeah, ways? yeah. And with still Reconstruction, but Reconstruction was kind of waning a little bit, I think. Okay, and um, in the first Rex parade, one of the bands was the U.S. Army band. Right. Okay. So all you hear about the animosity uh, between Nathan. I mean, Rex has always, from the very beginning, been close to the army. All right. right? Uh, uh, so the thing. The uh, and then and also curiously, when Solomon came, I mean, uh, 
when the Grand Duke came, he was part of a, the United States took him on a nationwide tour, right. or at least as far as the, the Midwest, and he landed in Washington, they took him around and all of that. And one thing he really wanted to do was go hunting buffalo. And so they did, and they took him up to Nebraska, apparently a lot of buffalo in Nebraska at that time. And his host, assigned by the U.S. Army, was George Armstrong Custer. So Custer was hunting buffalo with the Grand Duke. Okay. <laughs> and then, for good measure, being it was the Grand Duke, they brought in from a Wyoming Buffalo Bill. So here, imagine this. Here you had <laughs> Buffalo Bill, <laughs> Custer, and the Grand Duke Alexis. And this is this is all verified. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> That's oh, the great. fifth. Oh, the, this is solid. Oh, okay. It, sa- it uh, sounds absolutely like lore, you know. No, no, exactly true. And I, and I, and I had one more character to this. Um, they're the very prominent tribe of Indians who were very cooperative and, and with the, the head of the Indians is a guy named Spotted Tail. Okay. Okay. And one legend has it. Wherever the Grand Duke went, there were rumors of some kind of romance. So right. They, and, and, and there were legends that the Grand Duke had his eye on Spotted Tail's daughter. Oh, gosh. But, <laughs> but as far as we know, nothing ever, um, um, ever came out of that. So anyway... Um, so from hunting, they worked their way down, and, and they went to St. Louis. And St. Louis was, um, he saw this woman, Lydia Thompson, yeah. perform. Now, the, Lydia Thomas was an English burlesque story. Right. And back then, burlesque didn't necessarily mean strip. It, it kind of meant like a, maybe a slightly naughty song and dance song. Okay, but it wasn't a strip show. And, uh, but she was a big name. Right. And... Uh, and he thought Lady Thompson perform, and it happens that she was going to New Orleans too. Okay. And so they were both heading down to New Orleans. So that started all kind of rumors. And apparently the Grand Duke. They're all traveling by train, I guess. Uh, no, no, this is by steamboat. Steamboat. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so this was a. Uh, apparently the Grand Duke must have like a, a case of bracelets. Okay. Because <laughs> supposedly uh, he gave Lydia Thompson a bracelet. So that touched off all these other rumors. Okay. About, but as far as we know, I mean, nothing really materialized. In fact. She got a. She invited them to a performance in in, in uh, uh, New Orleans. And he didn't go. There was, there was a big dinner that night, and he said, "Big dinner, Lydia. Big dinner." Anyway, <laughs> uh, he went to the big dinner. Um, by the way, the building where the big dinner was still happens. If you go to the fairgrounds, right next to it, there's this big old gothic kind of building. It used to be a jockeys club. Yeah. On Esplanade. I don't know if it, that was there, and that was where it happened. That was a jockeys club. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, uh, and so uh, that's what he had. So the Grand Duke added to the, the legend uh, more than anything else. So, it, but, but the other fact that I think is really important to understand is that in 1869, Lincoln, now Lincoln did all kind of important stuff when he was president, okay? But one really important thing he did that gets overlooked is that he signed the legislation allowing the creation of a cross-nation railroad. And so the first Intercontinental Railroad was uh, built in 1869. Uh, and so once you did that, that opened up a lot of possibilities, too, because it's the same old thing. So you see, like you saw in Europe, you saw railroads coming into line. And what happens with railroads? Um, in fact, for the first Rex Parade, there are stories about leaflets that were distributed up and down, there was a railroad that ran from New Orleans to Chicago and St. Louis. And up and down the line at the train stations, they had signs coming through the parade of the King of the Carnival. Right. And so the, the railroads 
we're promoting this sure. as a way to travel. And this Sell is, a ticket. This is a common thread. I mean, it's like the story with the national parks. It was the railroads that built the original national parks because they got these trains going all the way across the country, but why does anybody get out, you know, in the woods, all right? <laughs> and so, like... Uh, Where do you go? Yeah. And so some of, like, the original lodges, like mm-hmm. the Glacial National Park and all that, and, and um, I think Yellowstone. And so this thing about railroads needing to create an existence was something... Uh, to that, justify their existence, right? Yeah, you yeah. have to go somewhere. Yeah. Um, and even with streetcars, that you had a, a streetcar running from downtown to the lakefront, Again, why are people going to go? So they created this little amusement area called Milneyburg. Right. Again, it was the railroads. So please, please ride our trains. Yeah, they, uh, and so that became an important element. And so more important than the Grand Duke uh, was the coming of, uh, of the railroads, which right. was a, a, a real element. You know, it's interesting. You, you, as you were describing the, the, that thought of seeing Comus come down the street in the middle of the night and the, the flames and the, and the beautiful decorations and costumes, I, I'm forgetting that this is... Before radio, TV, movies, uh, you know, all the other things that, you know, dazzle and distract us now. So this stuff was probably extremely impressive. You know, the, the, just it's very uncommon and, and probably the kind of thing that someone would get on a train and travel, you know, two days yeah. to come see. Yeah. And, and that still was an impressive sight up until 1990 when, when, when Columbus stopped parade. It was a beautiful sight. Um, and, and I'd love to be on Canal Street looking down. St. Charles in the sea coming. And Coleman still had these old old floats made on wagon wheels. Mm-hmm. But the advantage is that they shook a little bit, so there was kind of like a, what I call the shimmy factor. Right. And so they had a lot of paper mache, like paper mache flowers and different objects. And it that was shimmying. Yeah, yeah, that kind of sway. That's neat. And, and, and then to see the glow of the flambeau uh, along the side. And then on the first float um, was, uh, was Coleman's. Well, I know all the reasons all that went away, but knowing what I know from talking to you over the years, doesn't it seem like at some point someone's going to bring back those types of floats? It's going to it's going to be a revival at some point. Of- well, some of them, um, the crew of Proteus, which parades on the night before Mardi Gras, uh, was like the fourth oldest parade. I mean, I mean, it's an early parade around mm-hmm. Rick's time, and um, they went away for a couple of years and they came back, mm-hmm. and their floats are like in that old style parade. I love seeing the Proteus yeah. parade. Uh, and I think there's some uh, the crew of uh, Chaos, yeah. which parades on that third the same night as Muses. Right. All right. Um, I know a lot of people go out there to see Muses, but but, but go a little bit early and see Chaos because they they really ascended from what was the the crew of Momus, right. which was right. uh, the third oldest parade, and, and so you see that style. It's Comus Rex Momus. That's how it happened. It was Comus. Rex in 1872, and the strange thing, Momus on New Year's Eve of 1872. Yeah. And so they both started in 1872, okay. but at two different ends, and, and then eventually uh, Momus moved to that, uh, that Thursday. But yeah. Were there, were there membership overlap in these groups? I, mean, oh, now, I think so. It could have been that many elites and wealthy people to run these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, like I think these guys who started Rex probably had experience with Comus. And, Seems like it. And, and, and to this day, I think there's... Uh, uh, you know, there's Comus people in Rex. Now, Comus is a fairly small organization. Right. But I think, but in the same thing, Rex is different. Okay. If you if you look at the online crews, Rex takes seriously the title King of Carnival. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so it's a larger one that uh, has more of an outreach to it. Uh, and it's going to just gather more people. And I know 
in the last 20, 30 years, whenever there was a crisis, uh, the police strike was one. Uh, the Dorothy May Taylor ordinance was another one. The uh, COVID was another one. Right. That the Rex leadership was always at the leadership of dealing with the crisis. They're basically speaking for the crews. They, they certainly organized the crews right. and, and, and got it together. And so uh, it plays an important role. And so Rex is more of a public service role. The other crews, like Comus, began and has always been a social organization. Right. Uh, it is what it is, okay? I mean, it's, uh, we're an old traditional type organization. Um, you know, we don't raise money. I mean, not as a crew. We, you know, we might do it as individuals. Right. We represent this old tradition. Right. And uh, I think what it is. And uh, so different philosophies uh, uh, between the two. But, yeah, the loss of Comus was a, uh, was a big loss. Whatever can come back, I, I don't know. The, the, uh, I don't think the police would be very receptive of it just because they don't want another parade on Mardi Gras night. Right. <laughs> okay. right. Right. I mean, they might like it aesthetically, but, but, but the other idea and all that. There is, I'm told, a couple of Coleman's floats that are still left. Um, there's a, a float then on, um, on Bordeaux Street okay. uh, where Proteus's floats are built, but way in the back. Uh, they have a couple of Coleman's floats. They're still there. Yeah. They're yeah. And uh, I think the Coleman's float, uh, or, or the King's float from Coleman's. That's awesome. Is it still there? Okay, wait. So you were, <laughs> there's a, if we're trying to cover the or the evolution of Carnival or Mardi Gras in New Orleans from Saturnalia to 2023, obviously there's way more than you can cover in one conversation, but you, you, you kind of guide us how much more you want to cover. You've got us as far as the beginning of the modern Carnival, Rex, 1872, and from there, I mean... Well, well, let me mention two more, couple... More yeah, what happens next? Pivotal times, <laughs> okay. So, over the years that more parades were developed, we've we mentioned Proteus and in, uh, in Momus, uh, Zulu developed really early, too. It did. Yes. And, uh, and, and Zulu developed first as a, a spoof of the white parades. Right. But all Carnival parades are a spoof of something. Right. I mean, they're doing something. But uh, its role was really important in Carnival. But when it first started, it went like into the back neighborhoods. It didn't go along Canal Street and right. St. Charles. Uh, and it would go especially like to um, funeral homes because uh, all there were a lot of black funeral homes because at that time uh, 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 funeral homes weren't integrated. But, but, but so the funeral homes were sponsored, so they go there. They'd stop at bars. And, but anyway, ultimately they got on St. Charles Avenue and they got on... Down Canal Street, and of course, the thing about throwing the coconuts became right. very, very endearing, and it's just been a popular thing. Uh, and I've got this theory that in 2006, would that be the year, the year after Katrina, Katrina was in uh, yeah. 2005, September 5, yeah. uh, that Zulu saved Carnival uh, that year because what had happened is that the um, the year of Katrina, there was a lot. Of, okay, so Katrina was in September, say getting into Mardi Gras, which is in February. Mm. And, yeah, and um, Mayor Nagan uh, one Sunday went to uh, some kind of group of displaced New Orleanians on the North Shore, and they were they were asking, and it was mostly black. Okay, and they were asking, and said, "Mayor, I mean, 
all of the poor people, they were all displaced. How can you have a Mardi Gras celebration? And Negan essentially agreed. Okay, yeah, I don't know how I can have it. Well, Negan wasn't... Like, how can you celebrate if there's so much suffering and yeah, uncertainty? Yeah. But Negan wasn't noticing the TV cameras in the back of the room. Okay, right, right, I remember that. Okay. So that night, it was a Sunday night, the lead story. Right, Negan said, you shouldn't have Mardi Gras this year and all this. Okay. And it became an uproar. Uh, and uh, a, a lot of comments about that. Well, Zulu stepped in. And Zulu says, yeah, we want to have carnival. I mean, it's part of our culture. You, you know, right. we, we need to have this. It creates jobs. It creates things for people and all that. Zulu would have been in a position if they had just said, we agree there shouldn't be carnival. Right. Politically and socially, there wouldn't have been carnival that year. Okay. Right. And it was Zulu supporting it. Okay. And they brought all the Mardi Gras Indians back on the street and every, everything else. And so the, uh, um, that really made it happen. And it, it did happen that year. A, a lot of the crews were, were a lot smaller and a few kind of combined floats. But if we if we hadn't paraded that year, because once Katrina came, the world's media was camped out in New Orleans and everything was being reported. If it wouldn't happen, the story would have been out worldwide that New Orleans is so beaten down they can't even have carnival anymore, right. that New Orleans is dead. Right, right. Okay. Uh, instead, the, the report went, Went back, hey, look, New Orleans. <laughs> they're parading again, okay? They might be crazy, but they're having yeah. a party girl. <laughs> yeah, but that was great because because that would have been an image. Right. We know, I mean, there's still people today who think New Orleans is flooded. Okay, right. from right. Katrina, okay? And that was an image. It had taken years and decades um, to get over with. The optics, yeah, yeah good yeah. optics. And so I always remind people that they should be grateful because of... Uh, um, of, of, of what they did, right? But um, so yeah, back into to the uh, history there. Oh yeah, the timeline. Zulu comes along. And yeah. So anyway, so over the years, there's a uh, there's a new type of crew, which, for lack of a better term, was called the commercial crew. Now, now it wasn't didn't have commercials, but but but, but these were crews that, that they weren't old families or or uh, um, they weren't class oriented. They were just people like. Maybe insurance agents and friends. I mean, people, right. in, people in business who wanted to have their own parade. Right. So these are the things like Carrollton and Mid City and Farad. Did that all start before World War II? Is that that old or no? After around that time, Mid yeah, middle of last yeah, century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some before and all that, and, and then, uh, but uh, and so there was a big development in that. A key year was 1930, because in 1930, um, a new building opened. And that was the municipal auditorium. Right. Now, the auditorium was built, and they never said it publicly. They said, well, this is a multi-purpose building for all kinds of things. But deep down inside, <laughs> when, when they built it, they built it for carnival balls. And it had two theaters in it, a larger one and a smaller one. So you could actually have balls simultaneously. In yeah. it. Well, once it opened, it was like the coolest building in the world. I mean, people just loved it. And so some crews started just to be in the auditorium, just to have their ball because it, it was a, it had beautiful floor space. Yeah. And, and, and someone pointed out to me that if you look at pictures of carnival balls before the auditorium opened, before 1930, like the maids and the queens, that their dresses weren't all that grand, that they weren't big. But after 1930, they had these huge trains. That, that, everything that, got that, bigger. Yeah, everything got so bigger. So it's interesting because that's way before the convention center and all yeah, that. So the yeah, municipal yeah. auditorium is what, what, what made the scale grow. Yeah. And so a lot of the organizations, and, and then also its location off of Rampart Street, it was possible for a parade to come down Canal Street, turn up Rampart, then go into what is now Armstrong Park, mm -hmm. and in there, the crew riders get off their floats there, and then, then go and parade. 
And so that was exciting, too, for a lot of crews. And then a lot of the crews started out with just ball crews. But anyway. So that building went up in the 30s. Yeah, it opened in 1930. So it predated all the, everything else around it. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and the first ball was like Elves of Umberon, which was just a, a, a ball thing. But the other key year, I think, is 1968. Because what had happened by 68, uh, there's kind of this feeling that Corner was getting kind of tired. It was the same mm -hmm. old parades and mm -hmm. the same old things. We needed to do something different. And amazingly, that the Sunday night before Mardi Gras, which I think would be like a prime time, there was nothing mm -hmm. that night. And and there was only the produce parade that Monday night, which had kind of gotten a little lethargic itself. So this is the famous meeting and a group of people at Brennan's restaurant. Mm -hmm. And they say, you know, we really need to create some, some, some new interest. You know, it kind of reminds me of Lewis Solomon talking about the guys at, uh, at the... Uh, yeah. Uh, at the St. Charles Hotel, saying we got to do something new here. Okay, this is the same thing. Okay, from 1872 <laughs> to 1960. I mean, Almost 100 years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, know, you could have transposed these people. Right. Um, and they said, let's do something really, really different. And so, what they want to do, they want to have a big parade with bigger floats, biggest floats anybody has ever seen, have a celebrity king, have lots of riders, have lots of throws. I mean, just like barrage the street <laughs> without throws. And then at that time, the um, a new convention center had just opened called the Rivergate. Right. And this was really, you know, instead of going to the same old uh, auditorium, I thin at the Rivergate and bring the floats inside the Rivergate, okay, <laughs> and then have a big part. Well, this was really revolutionary. But everybody went, uh, went along with it. So this is going to be, and again, the Celebrity King and just a, a, a new vitality. So it caused a lot of excitement yeah. in all of this. And, and, and float builder um, uh, Blaine Kern was uh, um, was there, and he was commissioned to do it. And I remember talking to Kern many years later, and he told me he went to a meeting that night, and it was uh, Pip Brennan, I mean, Owen Brennan, okay, who was the proprietor of uh, Brennan's, who called the meeting. And Kern said he went home that night, and he said, well, how was your meeting? And Curran says, that's Pip Brennan. He's got to decide that he's crazy. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know, he just totally dismissed it. All right? uh, and he had the same conversation a few years later, well, in, in 2000, I think 2000, when he went to this, uh, had a meeting with this woman named Stacy Rosenberg, yeah. who wanted to start a big all-female crew. Yeah. It was the same kind of thing. That's Stacy Rosenberg. She didn't know what she was doing. Okay. Okay. Little ego. So anyway, Bacchus was a sensation. I mean, it just right. drew huge crowds. Uh, it filled that Sunday night. And now as far as tourism, it really gave you reason for the hotels to have like a, a three-day package. You know, right. Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Actually, four-day package. Before that, there was no reason to come in before. Uh, and so it kind of created the four-day package. It had so many riders that had to attract some people from out of town, which are good. These are people um, who spend money. The celebrity thing was a big deal. It used to be a big conversation. Hey, who's... Uh, who was the first? Uh, uh, Danny Kaye. Yeah. He was kind of a, uh, a song and dance guy. Sure. And, and, and then, uh, and over the rest, I, I don't know if they were in order, but I remember Bob Hope and then Jackie Gleason and all that. Hey, these are big stars from yeah, the, yeah. the time. So anyway, so a few years later... There's this guy in Gentilly who has a small Gentilly parade. And um, I think it was Blaine Kern. 
uh, who talks to him, he says, hey, I want you to come and see what this new Bacchus crew is doing. And so he took him to the, um, the Bacchus rendezvous, whatever they called it. It was like, wow. Well, the guy was Ed Muniz, okay? Right. And his small parade in Gentilly was named after a racehorse that races the fairgrounds called Endymion. Right. And so uh, he called, I want to do this. And so within two years, he was able to transpose the small parade in Gentilly to a parade that was really bigger than Bacchus. Right. Uh, and this was at the age when just about any parade that started, they always compared it to Bacchus. Right. We're going to be bigger than Bacchus. And everybody, now, hardly anybody ever reached that goal, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, except for Endymion. But Endymion did. And then Endymion also had the extra advantage uh, that came down Canal Street, so everything else was going down St. Charles. Right. And, and, uh, and here you had Canal Street. And I can tell you, somebody like myself who lives along that route, you, you measure the year by Endymion, mm-hmm. okay? Like, how many weeks away for Endymion? What do we right. need to do? <laughs> you know, what needs to be fixed before Endymion and all that? Okay. Before the mob takes over. Like yeah, that. yeah. It's huge. And so, and Endymion would have its, uh, uh, its party. Anyway, so that was the birth of the super crew. Right. You had super Bacchus crew. and Endymion, and then I think it was in 92 or something that you had Orpheus. Uh, right, much later, yeah. A couple yeah. decades ago. Yeah, and, and that was a big thing. Uh, and they did do the throws. Now, I personally say, I hope there's no more super crews because we, we don't need four, okay? And the fact that they introduce a lot of throws, I wouldn't mind if there's a moratorium on throws and right. all that, okay? Because I, I think they're aware of it. And this is when you start seeing people with these, like, basketball-sized beads and, and things like that, you know, you know all, all of that. Right, Fill, uh, filling up our storm drains. The whole idea of the celebrity king has gotten kind of thin also. Yeah. Um, most years, I haven't heard of this, <laughs> the right. king, okay? And uh, I do remember in Dimian about five, six years ago when they had Alvin Kamara and Marshawn Lattimore from the Saints the first year they came. Yeah. And they were both like, I think one was the offensive player of the year. One, yeah. that was, that's the kind of celebrity I like to see, Rod. You know, yeah, yeah, people but, that you just care about so much locally. But then I kings, they're grand marshals. Grand marshals, yeah. And, and I think that's the thing. You can call anybody a grand marshal just from the one that float in the yeah. convertible. And then you're not carrying baggage. Right. Uh, like, but when you say somebody's your king, yeah. then you got to have a king's float, and you got to make the balloons with it and all mm-hmm. that. So you have all the grand marshals you want. And like in Dimian, like if it has the bands that it's extravaganza, they'll have like maybe the lead singer and all that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so that kind of thing is good. But I, I kind of think that the celebrity king thing has run its course yeah. uh, a little bit. And uh, I remember fairly recently... Bacchus was the guy who's on the uh, former's life commercial or something, kind of like this, <laughs> yeah. this bald guy with glasses and all this. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, and people are familiar with him, say so he's a really good actor, but I, I, I'd never heard of him. Uh, so I don't think we need that because I think now the celebrity is Bacchus, you know, and the celebrity is, uh, uh, is Endymion. But anyway, that really transformed Mardi Gras a lot. And at the same time, there was a growth in the suburban Mardi Gras the time, and when uh, the crew of Orgas started uh, on, on Mardi Gras, they said the same thing. We're going to be like a, a Bacchus-type parade. Well, it's a respectable parade, but, it's, it, it, you know, it's not a Bacchus-style right. parade. So I just was looking up J.K. Simmons. That's the actor, right? Uh, From, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. But, um, okay, so, so you kind of skipped over the two wars. Now, I'm pretty sure from previous conversations— uh, 
what happened, and I think what basically happened is Mardi Gras stopped. Yeah, they didn't have parades. It just yeah. shuts down for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, was there was there the same like like just like after the Civil War, and then there was the birth of there was kind of the birth of modern Mardi Gras as a way to get people back here. Was there any sense of that after you know World War One, World War Two? Was there like uh, efforts to to do more, get get more people here? Was it oh yeah, well I think that's always the case. Like when. When you're recovering from a bad thing, people say, let's fix this and let's do better. And we're living that right now. Yeah. Uh, um, you, you know, in the post, what I, what I assume is the post-COVID era, that I think there's more of an energy out there. People want yeah. to do things and create new things. And in the last few years, there's been a lot of parades started, new ones. I mean, there's smaller parades. We right. don't need any, any bigger parades, but things like things like Chewbacca's and those kind of things. That, well, maybe, maybe since as the last thing we could talk about to get us to 2023 modern where we are today with Mardi Gras, we should talk about post-Katrina and that emergence of all these walking clubs and all these all these other well, sun crews and things. That Okay. Well, another key thing, okay, after Bacchus, and, and then when Bacchus brought with it, was the emergence of uh, muses. Oh, for sure. Okay. And... Uh, and what happened is that this woman named Stacy Rosenberg, who I don't think had ever uh, been in a carnival parade, she one year she went out to parade because she had a, a friend, a legal friend, a lawyer friend who was riding mm-hmm. in the Muses parade. So she was standing there in St. Charles, and she says, you know, I bet I can do that. Okay. <laughs> so she went home. And um, she called some of uh, her friends on the phone. And uh, one of them, I think her name was Liza or something. And uh, said, Liza, what do you think we'll start a parade next year? Uh, just for women. And uh, Liza said, well, wait, let me check with some of the girls here. She had a bunch of them in the party the house. And they said, hey, Stacy on the phone. She wants to start a new parade. What do you all think? Yeah, yeah, let's do it, okay? And, uh, and again, this is a long shot mm-hmm. to do this. But she went, she talked to Blaine Kern, the same kind of thing. Yeah, we'll do it. Ah, she's crazy. <laughs> All right. Um, but she pulled it together, and they got, they were masters of publicity. Uh, and they created a parade that was going to be innovative because, well, first, they'd been all female crews before. But they were first, they parade on the weekend. But this was the first all female crew during the age when women had become such a dominant part of the professional workforce. Right. And I remember that time when this crew was starting and hear stories about, hey, man, I got this new crew, Muses. Uh, I can't get in. Uh, I call them and their <laughs> membership list is already full. Right. It just filled up really, really quickly. You know, they did all kinds of things like they'd bring apples and feed apples to the horses along the way. And they'd, right. and they'd have uh, contests with, with school kids to design their cups. Right. Uh, and uh, they'd do a celebrity too, but it's kind of a celebrity light uh, uh, kind of thing. And they did, and I'm sure for the first few years they weren't able to build brand new floats, so they probably got a lot of floats off of Blaine Kern's lot. But they did clever things with them. They did kind of a, a spoof. They had, they had humor to them, and it was a big parade. But the other thing, which I really think transformed Carnival, is that they allowed all these walking clubs, these women's walking clubs. Right. And they've been walking clubs too, but not so many, and not so many that are just so clever. Right, high, yeah, high you know, concept oh, yeah. and well executed. When I go to Muses, I mean, I have great respect for Muses. Well, I enjoy the most of the walking clubs. Right. I mean, they're fun because the walking clubs, they're next to you. They're, they're on the street. They're not somebody like way up there and all right. of that. And I'm, I'm not trying to catch anything. 
You mentioned something, and I was curious. You talked about Blaine Kern being skeptical back in the 60s mm-hmm. when, when, the, when those guys were launching mm-hmm. their Super Cruise, and then again with Muses. What are the economics of this? They say, hey, like you and me, we, we finish this conversation, we're going to go start a new crew. I mean, I assume it's extremely expensive to, to make the parade, whether you're refurbishing or repurposing floats or not, uh, and then you have to deal with all the permitting and the city and the politicking. And then, I mean, what does it cost to launch one of these crews? Well, I can't give you an exact figure, but the fact is that they, they keep on doing it, okay? Uh, and uh, so it's done. And, and, and look, this is something people need to appreciate about Carnival, that there's no commercial sponsors, at least in New yes. Orleans, okay? Now, you go out to the Jefferson Parish parades, and they're all commercially sponsored, but... It's really but different. There is no commercial sponsorship, and so it's really paid for by the riders. Right. And so all that cost is factored in into what somebody has to pay to ride, but still there are a lot of people, you know... Who willing to pay the ride? And that's the way it all gets paid for. It's just basically you want to ride in this parade. Here's your here's your check. Here's your bill. Yeah. And you add up the 600 people that are in your crew, whatever it is, bigger, bigger, smaller, and that pays for the for all the design work and all the permitting and but everything. That pays for the crew membership, including that. Yeah. But you still got to buy your beads buy and all beads, that. Okay. And there's a heavy demand for, for beads. And then the super crews have some kind of big extravaganza party. Pay for that. So you got to pay for tickets for that. And so it's an expensive thing. And uh, that's why, you know, at first people were saying, well, you know, these super crews, there's a lot of people from out of town that are, that are coming to it. And some people say, well, that's not right. I mean, New Orleans is for locals. But no, it's good, okay. <laughs> spend because, money. Yeah, they spend money, but it brings new people into the city. Yeah. Okay, it helps justify the expense because um, the city's main expenses are police and sanitation. Right. And they keep a close eye on that, okay. And, and if it wouldn't, Meet, they couldn't parade. I, I, I mean, you know, I mean, there's no godfather that's going to come and, uh, uh, and bail them out. And so it's incredible. I don't know of any, like, important event, like entertainment or social event, that's essentially paid for by the entertainers. Yeah. Right? Which is pretty incredible um, that they do that, you know. Right. They, the people that are up there throwing the beads are yeah. paying for this party. Yeah. And there's a tradition, and I think it's true for most crews, not all of them, that the even your leadership is not paid. Right. Uh, you know, like the captain of Rex isn't paid to be captain of, of Rex. Now, some of them, I think some of the big ones will have a staff person who is paid, you know, who's kind of like doing, maybe almost impossible to do everything. Some of the things that aren't. That, that, I, and someone did tell me, uh, someone was talking about some of the inside stuff. I think if you run a float, you might sell the beads to your, you might say, hey, I've got package of beads for you and you might get a little, yeah, I, a little I, piece of that. I, I can't deny that, that that doesn't go on, okay? And that they're, uh, yeah, and... and uh, That's a good point about the city spending but, but, money. Well, well, the family that, that owns beads by the dozen is also very active in, uh, uh, in Endymion. Right. Okay, so I'm sure there's some kind of connection, but if that if that makes them easier for them to buy beads, uh, you know, I don't think... As long as it doesn't become a racket, but I, right, I, right, right. I don't think. It's, oh. But it is funny. You think about the bottom line, like the line items, and for the city, it's police to keep people safe as possible, cleaning up everything. But Same also, thing. there's all the like the uh, the work about the barricades and everything else. I mean, there's there's yeah, it's yeah. a decent amount of uh, logistical effort too. Well, the police have had to exert themselves, and and um, one key thing is you know it used to be you'd have parades down Canal Street, St. Charles, out in Gentilly. Yeah. And over the years, the police have wanted to standardize the route so that now, in New Orleans at least, just about every parade is along the St. Charles route. Uh, along, there may be a little variance at the beginning 
uh, around Napoleon Avenue, but it's pretty much the same route. Right. So they don't need to be moving barricades around. It's much the more one, efficient, much more cheap. The one exception is Endymion. Endymion is like the the giant in the room, okay? He kind of makes his own rules. And so uh, Endymion going down Canal Street, there would be an uproar, including from me, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, if they take uh, Endymion off Canal Street. And it's good that you know one part of the city... Yeah, the two. Well, but yeah, it's I, not like it used to be. No, I moved here in the 90s, and I lived on Canal next to Mandina's. Uh-huh. I had a balcony off my bedroom. Yeah. Overlooking it, and there was probably, what, eight or nine parades? Yeah. Something like that back yeah. in the early 90s. Yeah. That's long gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, yeah, there used to be, uh, well, Mid-City. Okay. <laughs> Mid-City, uh, yeah. Mid-City no longer parades in Mid-City. Right. I mean, uh, in the Carrollton Parade and Pontchartrain Parade. Pontchartrain. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and, and so that's unfortunate, but... Right. If it justifies still having a carnival, uh, so much the better. Right. Okay, so now 2023 carnival, here we are. You got us up. We've talked about it from Saturnalia to now. Anything of note as we as we talk about this year? Uh, anything specially new this year? I think the big news this year is that's happening, okay? Yeah. Because there was a lot of question uh, about that and all this. And the, re- the return of the proper toe through and all that stuff. Yeah. I think the issue... For the future, though, is going to be this whole thing about security manpower right. for and all that. And, and, and we had a close call this year because for a while it looked like they wouldn't have it. All right. And I don't know enough about all that happened, but something over a very brief period of time happened. Well, I was saying, hey, we've got all we need. And apparently, part of it was that the sheriff, who's barely known to the people in New Orleans, who's newly elected, Susan Hutton, okay, contacted other sheriffs. And got other sheriffs to agree. And they're getting paid, right? And they're getting they're getting paid, and they're getting put up somewhere. And apparently, the city's had no money problem. The city never said, "Well, we can't afford to do this." And so they're get, And I think the city's all along had enough money for police. They just didn't have enough people who wanted to be police. No, not enough manpower, right? Yeah, yeah, and all that personnel. Um, but that's an issue for the future. I mean, if what they did this year, if it can work, if it can become permanent, fine. But um, it's all tied in with the nationwide problem of not having enough, uh, enough police. I think there are enough parades. And, and every so often the council puts a moratorium on, on, on the number of parades. And then somebody who lives in the councilman's district calls up and says, hey, I want to start a parade. Oh, maybe we can make an exception for you. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think we don't need any more parades right. because that just adds to the... Uh, um, that they answer the problem. When you talk so, about Bacchus, I'll just tell you a very, very anecdotal. But I live by the uptown parade routes. Uh-huh. And I, um, you know, have five teens or older now. And we found that we talk about enough parades by uh, Sunday night. But that Bacchus night, that's the night where it gets crazier. You know, because the, you know, we've had Muses Thursday, we've had everything. You know, they've been going Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then by Sunday night, I feel like there's a certain level of exhaustion out there. And um, when there was any ever any trouble that we had to kind of wrangle or concat or manage, it was always Sunday night. So yeah, I definitely agree. We don't need to add any more days because no. I think the, the party is. Uh, and, and then on Sundays, there's parades during the day. Also, yes, it goes all day long. Yeah. So anyone who lives in the neighborhood is kind of landlocked into the. Uh, and people are just you know drinking all yeah, day long. Yeah, 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 into into the neighborhood, but. Uh, you can't, I've just said we, we had to. I remember there was a Bacchus night party at my house that got out of control. That we, that I still have a PTSD about. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, all right. Well, look. Uh, th- that was our discussion of the evolution of Mardi Gras from 
pagan times through 2023 <laughs> and the uh, extra uh, police personnel coming in to keep us safe. Errol Laborde, uh, you're an amazing human encyclopedia. Thank you. It's fun. <laughs> this season of Mardi Gras Beyond the Beads is brought to you by Crispy Crunchy Chicken. Bring craveable Cajun flavor to the party this Mardi Gras when you pick up a box of crispy, crunchy chicken at select convenience stores. It's hot, juicy, and marinated with a blend of spices born here in Louisiana. You'll love every bite.